Hello and welcome to the Millennial Minimalist Podcast. I am your host, Kelly Foss, and together with my co-host, Lauren Morley, our mission is to help you simplify your life and live with greater intention. Together, let's live more with less. Hi everyone, today we're speaking about anxiety and how we have the power to overcome our anxious thoughts, feelings, and habits through mindfulness training and curiosity. And to lead this conversation, we are joined by Dr. Judd Brewer, who is a New York Times bestselling author and internationally celebrated addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist specializing in anxiety and habit change. He is also an associate professor in behavioral and social sciences at Brown University, the executive medical director of behavioral health at ShareCare, and a research affiliate at MIT. You may have seen his famous TED Talk titled A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit, which has over 17 million views to date, or caught him on 60 Minutes with Anderson Cooper. Dr. Judd has extensively studied anxiety, and he is passionate about understanding how our brains work and using that knowledge to help us break free of fear and uncertainty so that we can feel less stressed. And today we discuss key insights from his latest instant New York Times bestseller titled Unwinding Anxiety, New science shows how to break the cycles of worry and fear to heal your mind, which is a clinically proven step-by-step plan to help people break the cycle that drives anxiety and addictive habits. In this discussion, you will learn about common anxiety triggers, where our anxieties hide, why we get stuck in habit loops, and how we can begin to unwind our anxieties by learning to be curious. Be inspired by proven brain-based techniques that can help you hack your brain, uproot your anxiety, and say goodbye to overwhelm. I just want to start off by saying Lauren and I are thrilled to have you here. We absolutely loved reading your book. We are two people who are quite anxious. <laughs> so we, we needed your book and we learned so much and we are super, super excited to share your lessons with our listeners today and, and also learn from you. I'm sure we'll learn a lot more. So maybe we can all learn something together. That's, that's the best conversation to have. Yeah, no, definitely. When Kelly and I were joking around, we're like, oh, I'm anxious about this interview. And then we're like the <laughs> irony in this. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, so we'll, we'll get into it. We'll go right into it. So you are a recognized thought leader in the field of habit change. And in your latest book, Unwinding Anxiety, you share a clinically proven roadmap to help us break unhealthy habit loops. And you do this by helping us discover our anxiety triggers and showing us how to train our brains to diffuse our triggers through the practice of curiosity and mindfulness exercises. And considering we are living in one of the most anxious periods in history and hundreds of millions of people suffer from anxiety, your book is not only timely, but also very important. And uh, again, we are super, super eager to have this chat with you today and learn more. So to start things off, the word anxiety and the line, I am anxious is being thrown around today more than ever. And especially during the pandemic, though, I find that many of us are unaware of our triggers. So I'm curious, what are some of the most common anxiety triggers you see today? And how can we begin to uncover our own triggers? Yeah, it's a great question. So I would say (laughs) I'm laughing because it could be just about anything that could trigger anxiety for someone. And that's because our brains associate, you know, this is where triggers come from our brains associate certain things with worrying or getting anxious. And that can be very, very individual. So the good news is, and I actually have tons of patients who with generalized anxiety disorder, for example, and they wake up in the morning 
And the first thing they feel is anxiety. So they're, they're half awake and they, they come in and they say, you know, I can't, I can't find all these triggers. I just wake up and I'm anxious. And I say, mm. well, you know, one, don't worry about the triggers because triggers are actually the least important part of this whole process, which I'm sure we'll get into. So I won't spoil it. And two, anxiety can be a trigger itself for driving anxiety habit loops. So just the feeling of anxiety can be a trigger for more, for worrying and more anxiety. Very, very interesting. I, I know that, I mean, some of the, some of the triggers are, you know, lack of sleep, personal work stress, also a messy home, something we talk about <laughs> quite often, you know, the, the physical mess can definitely cause anxiety. And in, in your book, you actually shared a really interesting stat. You said that in uh, 2021, 39% of Americans felt more anxious than they did in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm sure that's in part because of the pandemic also. And you said that uh, the highest anxiety rates uh, happen or occur in higher income countries. So it just goes to show the more we have, the more anxious we can become. I mean, Laura and I would love to say that the less you own, the less you need to worry about. So to be intentional with how much you have in your life and where you spend your time can be really helpful when it comes to anxiety. So I think it's so true. And I'm glad you highlight that because it's kind of like a privilege to be, to have time to worry, you know, for a lot of us. And the more stuff we have, the more stuff we have to worry about. (laughs) So I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. You said in your book that, you know, the more our needs are met, the more idle time, we kind of just have to sit around and worry about other things. So mm-hmm. that was really interesting. I wanted to ask you, I feel like we really throw around the word anxiety these days and we all feel, oh, I'm anxious. Oh, I'm anxious about that. Um, can you like clarify what anxiety actually is? And I, and I want to know why you got interested in studying it in the first place. Oh, I love these questions. So yeah, absolutely. If you think of, so we could go into, I could put on my bow tie and give you a dictionary definition of anxiety. (laughs) And I think it would go something like this, you know, a feeling of nervousness, worry, or unease about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome, you know, something Mm -hmm. like that. Does that sound dictionary enough? The way I think of it, I break it down is, you know, anxiety is fear of the future, you know, full stop. It is fear of the future. And the interesting piece about that is that, you know, fear is helpful. You know, when we hear rustling in the bushes, we need to figure out if that's danger and we need to run. Or if we step out into a busy street and we hear a car honking, probably a signal that we need to step onto the sidewalk. You know, so fear is helpful in right in the present moment. And the future, when we plan for the future, it's also helpful. But when you mush those two together, fear of the future is anxiety. And that is an anti-survival strategy that our brain has kind of come up with where it's like, oh, fear is good. Oh, planning for the future is good. Oh, how about fear of the future? It must be good. Wrong. <laughs> so, so that's kind of a definition and you know, it gives us a hint for where, where anxiety can actually come from. So how did I get interested in studying this? Well, let me count the ways. One was that I used to have my own panic attacks when I was in residency, when I was training in to be a psychiatrist. And, you know, the blessing and the curse was that I, you know, I'd wake up in the middle of the night with a full blown panic attack. And then when it was over, I could (laughs) just count down the diagnostic checklist and be like, check, 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 check. Oh, that was just, I just had a panic attack, you know, so I knew what it was. Uh, So (laughs) helpful to be training at the time that I was getting them. I, and (laughs) still helpful today. 
But the other piece that made me want to really look at anxiety and study and find ways to actually help was that I was getting anxious over helping my own patients with anxiety. So with, you know, when I prescribe a medication, the best medications out there, there's a basically a one in five chance that it's going to help somebody in a significant way. We call this in medicine, you know, the bow tie term is number needed to treat, you know, how many people you have to treat before one person shows a significant reduction in symptoms. And so there, you know, I'm basically playing the medication lottery. I don't know, you know, for the next five people that walk in the door, which one of them is going to show a significant reduction in symptoms. And what am I going to do with the other four, you know, say, well, you didn't win the lottery, you know, come back in another life, you know, when you have different genes. <laughs> so, so there, you know, it's like my frustration, uh, really, and my anxiety, like, how am I going to help these people? It, it actually serendipitously came together with some work I was doing, you know, my lab studies habit change. And we developed this app called eat right now that helps people basically with overeating, emotional eating, you know, change their relationship to eating. And somebody in that program had said, you know, I started to use this program. And I realized that anxiety makes me eat. Can you, can you create a program for anxiety? Cause I want to get at that root cause. And at the time, you know, I was like, well, I prescribe medications, but it put a bug in my ear and made me start thinking, well, what about, you know, what can I do? What have I missed? And so I started looking back at the literature and this was my, oh crap moment. I was like, oh, no kidding. Back in the 1980s, when the first SSRIs were, were being marketed, I think Prozac was the first one. Back then people were theorizing that anxiety could be driven like a habit. And when I read that, my eyes basically popped out of my head because I was thinking, wow, did I sleep through that lecture in medical school? I don't remember this. <laughs> and then I also thought, hey, I know something about habits <laughs> you know, and habit change. We just had some pretty successful trials with, with some of our other work. And so I was thinking, wow, maybe we could develop a program for anxiety. And then, you know, long story short, we developed this unwinding anxiety app, did a bunch of studies. And in, in a recent study, we got a 67% reduction in anxiety and people with generalized anxiety disorder. And so if you look at that number needed to treat, you know, with medications, 5.2 is the official number. It was 1.6 mm. and, and smaller is better. So I was, you know, if, I'm, if an app could do a mic drop, <laughs> yep. bam, <laughs> you're like, this is the way you're like, this yeah. is the way it's not the medication. It, it's, 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 it's actually training our brain. Yeah. That's and to be clear, yeah, for some people, medication is, is very helpful. So I'm not discouraging, you know, I prescribe medications yeah, for sure. But so for some people, medication can be helpful, but for all of us learning how our minds work, great way to go. That's so fascinating. Sure. I mean, in your book, you mentioned how anxiety hides in unhealthy habits. And I was like, okay, so if that's the case, you know, when I feel stress and tense and, you know, I have this increased heart rate and I breathe too fast. I mean, all the symptoms and anxiety, I'm like, okay, what do I do? I'm like, okay, well, I know I overeat. That's my way. Some people, when mm -hmm. they get anxious, they don't eat at all. For me, mm -hmm. I overeat. I overuse my phone. I am not, you know, I don't sleep as well. And these are the things that happen. So I, I'm curious, can you, can you share some other common habits caused by anxiety? And also I, I, I'm hoping you can share the relationship between anxiety and our addiction to these habits. Yes. Well, let's, let's start with the, you mentioned eating, for example, mm -hmm. I, this is a very common one. 
but I don't know. I don't know if you saw the memes that emerged during the pandemic. So first it was the quarantine 15. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. the freshman 15 in college, yeah. the quarantine 15. And one of my patients <laughs> the other day came in and she just matter of factly said, I have the COVID 20. <laughs> and, and I was like, no, this isn't a new virus. And she's like, no, it's the 20 pounds that I gained, you know, during COVID. I have the COVID 20. So that that's definitely going in my new book, but the, uh, that, that one, you know, just as let's use eating as an example, you know, so during the pandemic, many people were working from home. I still, my clinic is still virtual. I haven't actually gone back into my outpatient clinic, you know, setting yet. It's all virtual. And so for everybody that's, that's been working from home, they have ready access to food. And with the pandemic, there, there's tons of uncertainty and our brains don't like uncertainty. And so we want to make that go away. So, you know, our brain says, hey, the refrigerator's right over there. You can distract yourself for a little bit. And so this is an example of how these habits can form through anxiety. So any habit forms in a, in th with three core elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. So imagine anxieties that trigger, we feel anxious or we, there's some uncertainty or whatever, and then we eat and it distracts us or it tastes good or whatever. And so that feels better than the anxiety. So the result is that our brain says, hey, next time I'm anxious, you should do this again. And so we start to learn to stress eat as a habit or you know, eat out of boredom or eat to distract ourselves. So that's eating. Now let's look at all these others because the mechanism is the same for all of them. We go on social media, we check our newsfeed. Uh, we, we drink alcohol. So alcohol consumption has gone up a lot during the pandemic, uh, for, for a lot of people, not for everybody, but for a lot of people. And I've had patients, you know, again, ready access to alcohol. <laughs> you know, it's not like people are stashing a, a bottle in, in their office. Well, some people do, but generally that's, uh, so not so very socially acceptable. Yeah, well, when you're on a zoom meeting or whatever, there's, only, <laughs> you know, people can't see what you've got in the other room. And so it's much easier to have that access and to be drawn to drink, for example. So those are just some examples of all these, all these pandemic habits, so to speak, or all these anxious habits that form as a way to help, you know, distract ourselves or try to make ourselves feel better when we're anxious. And especially when we're working from home, right? I mean, everything is around us. I mean, Lauren and I, we both don't really, well, Lauren goes into an office, but when she does work at home, both of us, we work in our kitchens because we only have one bedroom apartments. So you don't have that separate space. And so we often tell our listeners, you know, create a very, very calm space. That's like less distracting because it's mm -hmm. so easy to be distracted by working for working in your kitchen. You're going to snack <laughs> when you're in an office. You're, you're probably less likely or grab a drink or whatever, because you're yeah. in, you're in your home space. So. Yeah. What was really interesting in your book too, was that you talked about anxiety does benefit us like from the way we process it in our minds. Like we, we think that we're trying to resolve a problem. So I just wanted to hear your, what you have to say about how anxiety does benefit as I, I actually heard an interview once and they're like, we need anxiety in our life to a degree, because if you didn't, you would be in jail. There, there's just a point where it, it does benefit you to some degree. That is a great question and a question that has been studied scientifically. So it, it really depends on if somebody reads the internet or reads scientific studies in terms of <laughs> whether they see their, or even look at their own experience to see whether there's a, there's an actual <laughs> benefit to anxiety. So I say this, and I wrote a little bit about it in the unwinding anxiety book, but the idea is it actually I traced this back because I was so fascinated by it. 
this goes back to a study done in, I think, 1908, so over 100 years ago, two researchers, Yerkes and Dodson, who studied Japanese dancing mice. Okay, I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. And they, they were looking to see if they could, you know, improve performance in some maze or whatever. The, the task doesn't even, it's not even that important. And they found basically that mice that are asleep, they don't go very fast, you know, I'm exaggerating a little bit. And then with a certain amount of arousal, and I think they shocked them or something to get them aroused, um, or not, you know, like alert, let's say <laughs> alert. Yeah. And then, you know, so a little bit of, you know, prodding got them, you know, alert and then doing their thing. And then a lot of prodding, you know, freak, basically freaked them out. And so they said, oh, you know, arousal affects performance, which makes sense. You know, if you're asleep, not going to perform well. If you're totally freaked out, not going to perform well. Well, in the 1950s, somebody gave a lecture and kind of loosely tied that together with anxiety. And then somebody else made this bold claim saying, you know, more, you know, there's this inverted U-shaped curve for anxiety without any evidence, you know, and again, doing some experiment with rats, I think in this case, and then came along, you know, and, and these studies were largely ignored for a hundred years. And then the internet was invented mm. <laughs> and, then, and then the trouble began. So people started citing, they call it the inverted Yorks um, Dodson curve, you know, of performance anxiety without evidence. And there's actually somebody that wrote a, a paper in 2013 talking about the myth of, you know, of this performance anxiety, because if you actually look at it, when you look at the research, there's an inverse, a direct inverse relationship between anxiety and performance. Any amount of anxiety is not helpful, right? And so this was this mashing up, this, this kind of casual massing up, and I would say in, inaccurate, so not very precise, where people are starting to link anxiety and arousal, uh, and also not looking at the actual data around anxiety. If, if we all look at our own lives, so we could look at the studies and say, okay, so somebody put a meme out on the internet and it sounds good and it justifies me. You know, I can rationalize having anxiety for myself, which is probably what I've had a lot of people be like, but I need my anxiety. And I'm like, yeah, you're attached to your anxiety, but does that yeah. mean you need it? Yeah. So, you, you know, wearing it as a badge of honor doesn't mean it helps your performance and ask your boss, does it help you on performance reviews? You know, well, the more anxious, you know, even they've optimized their anxiety and that's helped them perform well. That's, no. that's BS. Yeah. So if you, if you look at it, the best performance, you know, is not some middle ground of anxiety. It's actually when somebody's in flow. And this is where I like, you know, Chloe Kim, for example, she's a rock star in, in the sports world. Uh, for those that don't know her, she's a snowboarder. I think she won the gold medal in the 2018 Olympics, and she might've won again in 2022. I don't remember, but she, she absolutely rocked it in the half pipe in 2018. And she had this shit eating grin on her face, basically like she was having the time of her life. Now, if you go out there and you and you're really nervous when you're doing airs like that, you know, guess what? You're going to fall. But if you just go out there and relax and you loosen up, that's when you crush it. And so w whether we're an, an Olympic athlete or just anybody, you know, trying to do our job, you know, when do we do a better job when we're worried? No, because that worry is actually taking up energy 
and making it harder for us to devote that energy in the direction that we need to go. It also makes it harder for us to be creative. It makes it harder for us to connect with others. It just, you know, it just gets in the way of everything. So if, if people don't remember anything else from this podcast, I would say, you know, test your assumptions about performance anxiety and see if it's just an attachment to anxiety as compared to it actually helping. <laughs> so I'm glad yeah, you I, asked that question. Yeah. No, it was so interesting to me because I think people think, oh, I'm anxious, which is good. I'm worrying about this. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to find a solution. And we also equate anxiety and worry to success. It's like, oh, I have a stressful life. And we like romanticize that. So it yes. was really interesting how it, it's, that's not how it is at all. No, it no, isn't. No. <laughs> yeah, no. So I, I think the confusion is, and I, I think I've heard this many times. It's like, it's not going to help your productivity. I think we confuse anxiety as a good thing because maybe it's not anxiety. Maybe it's, it's self-motivation. Like you need that mm -hmm. self-motivation yeah. and that gets you started. I don't think that my anxious feelings serve me. You're right. I think about myself in uh, high school years when I would get up in front of a class and my face would always go red because I was so nervous, but so anxious. And I remember one day being like, okay, I'm going to just not get anxious. I can't control my red face. And I told everybody my face is going to go red, just telling you in advance and like going into it very calm was helpful, right? Like yeah. that was, that was the best. And I'm, I'm glad that you've confirmed that for me because I do love to have these discussions around anxiety with peers. And now I can say, Hey, that, that anxiety that you have actually isn't going to make you more productive. So um, I, I want to move the conversation over. You talk about how anxiety is a habit loop and how unhealthy cycles of fear and worry can often leave us feeling stuck. Now, can you describe what a habit loop is, including like the four steps and why we get stuck? I'd be happy to. And we touched on this a tiny bit, but let's get, you know, let's roll up our sleeves and get into it. So three elements for any habit, you know, trigger a behavior and a result. And with anxiety, it's really interesting because in that definition of anxiety is a feeling of worry. And so if we wake up in the morning and we feel anxious, we feel worried, that physical sensation or even a thought, you know, that, oh no, how's this going to go? You know, our brains don't like uncertainty. So, you know, anything related to uncertainty can be more likely to trigger anxiety. So that feeling of anxiety can actually trigger a mental behavior and that mental behavior tends to be worrying, right? So a feeling of worry can trigger a mental behavior of worrying and interesting how it can be, you know, that noun and that verb and that mental behavior, right? So trigger behavior result, that mental behavior results in, so if you look at the research, it makes us feel like we're in control or it distracts us from the worst feeling, feeling of anxiety. And, or I think of it as, you know, it's, we could sit there and worry and, and not have control, or we could sit there and worry about something and feel like it's better than doing nothing, even though it, it's actually worse than doing nothing. Because <laughs> as we talked about, worrying doesn't help. So that, that habit develops because that worrying feeds back and tells our brain, hey, you know, this is better than doing nothing. So the next time we're anxious, it triggers us to worry again, which then feeds back and makes us more anxious. And then we actually can go over this event horizon <laughs> of anxiety, worry, anxiety, worry into that event horizon of, you know, over into that black hole of, of panic, even that constant cycle that we can't get over. 
I mean, that's, yes. oh, I mean, Lauren and I, we, we, you know, we're close friends and we'll call each other when we are in these habit loops and just chatting with each other is, is definitely helpful. But at the end of the day, we have the power to control it on our end, which is the most fascinating part about your book. It's like you, you talk about how we, there is a solution. We can train our brains. And so I guess the bigger question I have is how can we begin to hack our brains to break unhealthy habit loops? Or what are some of the brain-based practices we can adopt to stop the cycle of fear and worry? Well, here I think of it at, and it's funny how a lot of things somehow break down into a three-step process. And so this just happened to break down into a three-step process. I don't know why, but that's the way it is. And this came from a lot of work we were doing, not only in my lab, but also in my clinic, I was running these groups it actually was with this, we had this app called eat right now, you know, where it was helping people with this stress and emotional eating. And we were running groups with them, live groups where we would, you know, they'd use the app uh, during the week and then they'd come in weekly and we'd uh, have kind of a flipped classroom model where they could bring questions and problems that they were struggling with. And we, we'd all work through them together. So everybody could learn from there. And in that group, we started to notice that people were having a discrete process of change where the first step was that they were able to map out their habit loops. And that's actually explicit. We would have them do that. So that was pretty straightforward. And then we would, they started to, you know, start to pay close attention to what they were getting from the results of that habit loop. And we'll talk about why that's so important in a minute. And then the third step was what they were defining. They called it we did this qualitative study where I think that the term was this unforced freedom of choice that emerged from embodied awareness. I should probably put it on a bow tie when I say that, but you know, it sounds a little esoteric, the, this unforced freedom of choice. They were talking about how they could change their eating habits when they paid attention and listened, basically listened to the wisdom of their bodies. And so that three-step process is actually, it was, it was so clear that we baked that right into our unwinding anxiety app, as we call it the three gears. I like to ride my bicycle. So I use that analogy. And the idea is that with this first step, when we map out our habit loops, you know, what's the trigger, what's the behavior, what's the result? It's that simple. Once we map that out, that starts to build momentum. It's like you're, you're in first gear when you're driving a car. A concrete example, I I have a patient that I actually wrote about in the book who was referred to me for anxiety, described how he would get panic attacks on the highway. He was avoiding driving on the highway and all that. And so we spent 30 seconds and just mapped out his panic habit loops. So his trigger was thinking about driving on the highway because he'd had previous panic attacks. The behavior was that he'd avoid driving on the highway. He was even nervous driving to my office on the local roads. So that was the, the behavior was avoidance. And then the result was that he could avoid having panic attacks. And I just wrote it out on a piece of paper with him and drew arrows between the three to show him the habit loop. And he, and he looked at me like I just explained, you know, Einstein's theory of relativity or whatever, <laughs> you know, where, you know, he, he had been struggling for literally for 30 years with anxiety. He was about 40 years of age when he came to see me. So he'd been struggling for three quarters of his life. And he had no idea that these, this was driven like a habit and just knowing that was tremendously empowering for him. So it might seem simple, this process of mapping out these habit loops, but it can be, it's, it's a critical first step and it can be really (laughs) empowering to start with. So does that make sense before we go into the next step? 
Yeah. And does that mean that he was, and, and I, I assume, so he was, he saw, he was mind mapping, he was understanding the, the, the cycle, the constant cycle, and he was avoiding everything. Now, how did, so I guess you, in your book, you talk about how we should get curious about our sensations that we can be more mindful about these habit loops. Now, I'm wondering, did he change that? Did he get out and drive again? I mean, and how did he manage that? Where is he now? Yeah. So let's use him as an example to talk through the next two steps. So uh, I call him Dave in the, in the book, his real name is Rob and he's, he's comfortable with people knowing his real name. Uh, so, so yes, I do not make these people up. I actually have a clinic. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the, the second step is really about tapping into our brain's power. You know, it's think, I think of the buzz, you know, the, the buzz line would be use your brain, you know, and, and not just like think about it because we often try to think our way, whether it's, you know, oh, I have to tell myself to eat cake and, or salad instead of cake. For example, if I'm, you know, if I'm eating a bunch of junk food or, you know, if I worry too much, just tell myself to stop, you know, it's not how our brains work. Uh, our brain, willpower is more myth than muscle. How our brains actually work is through this principle called reinforcement learning or reward-based learning that we've been talking about. And that critically depends on one thing, how rewarding a behavior is. So as I mentioned at the beginning, the trigger is not that important because it doesn't perpetuate a, a habit cycle. What is critical is how rewarding it is. That's why it's called reward-based learning. So what I have people do is to get curious. You were, you were touching on this a moment ago. I have people get curious about what they're actually getting from the worry. And so Rob started asking himself, like, what am I getting from worrying? And he, he in fact, was having a stress eating habit as well. He was, he was very, um, at a very unhealthy weight. And so <laughs> I send him home to start mapping out his habit loops around anxiety. And he comes back two weeks later, already visibly changed. You know, it didn't look as anxious. So I was thinking, okay, you know, learned something. The first thing he says to me, <laughs> he goes, Hey doc, I lost 14 pounds. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah. He was, he was like 180 pounds overweight. So, you know, okay. wow. and, and so I said to him, you know, I looked confused cause I was confused. Cause I was like, did we even talk about eating? Wait, cause yeah. we were, I was, I was going to hold off on that until we, you know, got the anxiety un under control. And he said, I started mapping out my anxiety habit loops. And I realized that I was eating as a way to, you know, I was stress eating and it wasn't helping, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't rewarding. It was actually making me feel worse because I know that it's not good. You know, I've, sleep apnea and a, you know, high blood pressure and all this stuff because of his weight. And so he said, Oh, so I just stopped doing that. And, and he said, you know, it was, it was, it's not like I had to tell myself to stop. It just, I just saw that it wasn't rewarding. And I use him as an example because that really highlights this critical principle. If we can pay attention and see that something is not rewarding, we will naturally become disenchanted with it. We don't have to force ourselves or tell ourselves to stop doing it, you know, stop worrying. We just worry more. Oh, why can't I stop worrying? And we worry about that. It's really about asking ourselves, what do I get from this? You know, what am I getting from the worrying? And is it helping me? And no, it's, it doesn't help. As we talked about, worry just makes things worse. So that's that second step. And as Rob started to, to pay attention, not only was it helping him with his eating, he actually went on to lose over a hundred pounds. He said it was effortlessly because, you know, it was just like, well, this isn't serving me. <laughs> and he, he was disenchanted with it. But then the other piece was that 
you know, the third step here is what I call bringing in the bigger, better offer, the BBO. So with that, you know, our brains are all, you know, our brains are going to pick behaviors that are more rewarding than others. You know, if A or B, if A is, you know, feels better than B, I'm going to do A naturally because that's how our brains are set up. So if we can start to pay attention and see how unrewarding worry is, we can then offer our brains something more rewarding. And that bigger, better offer is curiosity itself. So we can get curious about what do I get from worry? And we can also get curious about the anxiety, the feeling of anxiety. And then we can compare those two behaviors. Well, if I worry about anxiety, how does that feel? Versus if I get curious about what anxiety feels like in my body, well, curiosity wins every time, you know, it's a no brainer. So long story short, Rob started getting curious about what's anxiety feel like. And, you know, he'd really not done this before because he'd been running away from it his whole life. About five or six months into treatment, I, I was walking out of our school of public health at, at Brown university, which is in on main street in Providence, Rhode Island. So you know, relatively busy street. I'm walking out on the sidewalk and this car pulls up guy rolls down his window and it's Rob. I'm thinking, oh, great. He's driving. And no, no kidding. He says to me, Hey doc, I'm an Uber driver. Now I'm headed to the airport what? to pick somebody up. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Complete 180. That's amazing. Yeah. That's Incredible. amazing. And you, you said it took him a few months. How long, if someone started recognizing these habit loop behaviors like today, how long would it take the process to break that anxiety loop? Well, I can say on a population level because it's really depends on the person. Yeah. So at the more carefully we pay attention to these habit loops and the more clearly we can see that worry is unrewarding and the more we can naturally replace that with curiosity, the faster it goes. So I would say on average, when we've done clinical studies, you know, in this study with generalized anxiety disorder, we saw this 67% reduction in anxiety in two months. And we'd already wow. seen, I want to say a 47%, some, some significant reduction at one month. So we start to see change happen relatively quickly and we see big change. I mean, this is just, these are clinically, you know, determined endpoints. So this is somewhat arbitrary, but within two months, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing pretty big changes. So it's not like, you know, you've been worrying 30 years, you know, it's going to take you 30 years to unwind that. No, it can actually happen relatively quickly. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've read so many books out there that they'll, they'll throw numbers around. I'm like, how do you know exact number? But I think, I think the, 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 the number is around 60 days from all the books that I've read. It's around a couple months. So I, I think you can agree with that. It's like around, around that. Well, it depends on, you know, there's a lot of shoddy research out there. Sorry, oh, I, I don't mean to harp on this, uh, but there are actually not that many great studies on habit change in general. So you know, the, the biggest myth out on the internet, you've probably seen it as well as 21 days, you know, it takes to start a new habit that was just based on some plastic surgeon in the 1960s who wrote a book oh. on, and commented that it took his patients who were, it took them a roughly three weeks to get used to their new nose job. That was, oh. that was where that, that <laughs> statistic came from. Uh, and the 60 days is probably from one of the few studies out there that actually looked at, they did a, you know, tried to do some mathematical derivation, you know, some modeling equations based on a bunch of people with a bunch of different types of, of behaviors. And the modeling wasn't that great in terms of the fit, but that's, it's certainly better than the 21 day nose job thing. Yeah. What I would say is, you know, 
my, I had a professor in medical school who used to say that statistics are good for populations, but not for individuals. Mm. And I think that's truly, truly true in the sense that, you know, it's, you can get a sense in the population level, but the truth is what, what matters most is each of us on as an individual. And I would say, hands down, the more we pay attention to whatever the habit is, whether it's an unhealthy one, the more quickly we're going to let go of it. And the more we pay attention to our healthy habits, mm -hmm. the more they're going to stick and grow. Yeah. Well yeah. said. I, with curiosity, that's what helped me the most. Like after I read your book, I, that's what I applied. And I feel like when I'm anxious and I'm worrying, I will like dig myself into a hole and just keep worrying and worrying. And the curiosity pulls you out of that. Like it, it stops you from going deeper and deeper and just lets you obs almost observe your mind, which we'll get into mindfulness. But that was definitely the technique that helped me the most. And just understanding it, like, I think that I'm doing myself good by like the reward is that I'm, I'm trying to resolve the issue, but mm -hmm. acknowledging that I'm not doing that makes you find something else. So yeah, it was yeah. really interesting. That's so nice to hear. Yeah. And I think Lauren and I can agree. I mean, while we were reading your book, we were thinking about our own habit loops and how we can change them. Right. I mean, I, I there was a section in your book. I was like, okay, I'm going to stop because I feel anxious right now and I'm about to turn to my phone and I thought about, okay, well, if I turn to my phone, then it's going to take me around X number of minutes to get back on track with the right. work that I'm doing. Right. Uh, I, I mean, I, I interviewed Nir Eyal. He wrote the book Indistractable, which was also super helpful. It just reminded me, it's like, okay, like, do not get back into this habit loop? Cause I thought about how am I going to feel after this? Oh, I'm going to be thinking about other things. I'm going to be feel less focused. So it's not rewarding. So, mm. and, and same with food, think about, Oh, how is it, How do I usually feel when I overeat? I don't feel good. Yeah. So remind yourself of that feelings so that you don't do it. That being said, I like the fact that you touched on willpower and you stress mm. in your book that willpower doesn't work when it comes to breaking anxious habit loops, because you said, quote, we cannot think our way out of anxiety which is so true. We can't, uh, you, you shared multiple examples of that too. I mean, some people can, but it's like 0.001% or something. Yes. Yes. Mr. Spock and my friend, Emily, who seems yeah. to <laughs> have superhuman willpower. <laughs> yeah. 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 But like, but I mean, I mean the key to your book here, I mean, I was like, what is the central message in your book? The central message really is that the key component in the process of unwinding anxiety is learning to be curious. Yes. You know, to yes. have a curious mind to, you say, feel those sensations, be mindful of them. And, and I, I believe, I know you have a few apps out there. You, what are the ones uh, you have eat right now to help treat emotional eating. You have craving to quit to help smokers. And you have an, an app called unwinding by ShareCare to help people suffering from anxiety. Now I'm curious, like, can you share a story of one of your patients or users who suffered from anxiety and how your program or your app helped them? Well, I certainly, I'd be happy to, there are tons of studies or tons of examples. The, you know, the one I, that I mentioned with Rob, you know, I had sent him home with our unwinding anxiety app at my first clinic visit, you know, and within two weeks, you know, he had lost 14 pounds without even using the eat right now app. So there, there's an example of, you know, when somebody can really map out these habit loops, uh, they can, they can work with them. Uh, somebody, I, I'm thinking of some somebody in our Eat Right Now program who was one of our, she's probably started this five or six years ago. We our, our app's been out a little while now. And she had come to us because she had started binge eating when she was, I think, 12 or 13. She was um, feeling, you know, somewhat sad or depressed. And 
her friend was as well. Her friend, I think it just had a death in the family and they started learning that they could, you know, they binging was a way to, to avoid their, their feelings, for example. And so, you know, long story short, you know, for decades, she had in all these societal, you know, uh, habits that we have as a society for, you know, especially how women should look, you know, what, what they're, she, she described it. She's like, my body type is more like pink, but I was trying to be like Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> you know? right. so the only way, the only person that can look like Gwyneth Paltrow is Gwyneth Paltrow, right? in my opinion. And, and who knows what, what, you know, anyway, I would just say we have so many terrible societal expectations for how, how people should look. It, it's really unhealthy for us as a, as a planet. I'll just want to put that out there. So in, in emotionally, physically, all, all these things, not helpful. So she had spent so many years, you know, um, trying to restrict her eating and, and, and then, you know, binging during the holidays and all this. And had really, really struggled. And she started using our Eat Right Now program, and which basically tells people to give themselves permission to eat, which seems crazy for people who have all these food rules and whatnot. And she she basically gave herself permission and then you know realized that it wasn't going to be the end of the world and then paid attention to the results of her binging. And it realized that it really didn't feel good at all. And that helped her break out of the cycle, but also start to see that there was freedom that comes with not only awareness, but also being kind to herself. And so she had blamed herself, beat herself up. You know, it's, it's a great, if you're, if you're in the diet industry, it, you, it's a great formula to have. Cause you can say every, every doctor agrees that calories out versus calories in is a correct formula. And you just need to use willpower to follow the formula and you can use our program, blah, blah, blah. And then if you fail, it's because you failed the program, the program didn't fail you, but all these programs are set up as they're, they're dead on arrival. That's not how our brains work. You know, it's not about willpower. And so she was able to step out of that cycle of judgment and into the, the bigger, better offer that new behavior of self-kindness, which also helped tremendously. So there's an example, you know, of somebody who was able to really pay attention, step out of this old habit of the, of the diet mentality and step into a new way of being with herself and treating herself with kindness, uh, paying attention to, you know, foods, how, what food felt like in her body, what it felt like to overeat versus simply, you know, stop when she was full, all these things. It just really, really changed her life. In addition, you also speak about, uh, you also touch on an example of someone who was trying to reduce her drinking. And in the beginning, it was really, really challenging for her. And she realized she actually had a fixed mindset. Uh, she was judging herself rather than growing. I'm hoping you can share more information on how mindset plays a role in unwinding anxiety. Cause I understand that adopting a growth mindset, just in life in general is, is a good way to go. Sure. Uh, but why it's so vital to unwinding anxiety habits. Well, if you think of, uh, and I love Carol Dweck's work. So she's the first one that came up with the concept of fixed versus growth mindset. And so uh, the way I think of fixed versus growth mindset is fixed mindset is where we think, oh, this is the way it is. It's not going to change, you know, whether it's me or the situation or whatever. And that really puts us in this very narrow view field where it's like, this is the way it is. We're not looking at anything else. 
And that fixed, just feeling of a fixed way of being just feels closed and it feels contracted. And in fact, when we're anxious, we feel closed down. We feel contracted, you know, anxiety kind of, it's like this fear reaction that says, I've got to protect myself. You know, this is protective reaction. Well, when we're in protection mode, we're not learning our brain saying, this is not the time to learn. This is the time to survive. <laughs> right. So with fixed mindset, we're kind of in that survival mode and we're not open to learning. So, and this often happens with anxiety, you know, where we're in our comfort zone, where we are, we can kind of expect what's happening and then something unexpected happens and we get pushed out of our comfort zone, dragged out of our comfort cave, so to speak. And then we freak out, we go into our panic zone. So, you know, again, comfort zone, we're not really learning things because that's not where we, you know, we're not being pushed or challenged. Mm -hmm. And when we're in our panic zone, we're not in the place to be able to learn. So what can we do instead? Well, this is where growth mindset comes in. So, and what's the, what's one of the best ways to get into growth mindset? Well, it's curiosity. So if there's something uncertain or something unexpected that's happened, we can, there are typically two ways that we approach it. One is, oh no, oh, or oh crap, or, you know, where we start to worry like, oh, this is different. This is not what I expected. Or we start to freak out that, oh no, that's a signal that we're closing down. We're moving into our panic zone, our fixed, fixed mindset. And instead we can bring in, you know, think of our caped, you know, superhero of curiosity, you know, she swoops in and she says, instead of, oh, she says, oh, what's happening? This is different. This is unexpected. <laughs> and so she can take us by the hand and, and say, well, hey, this, you know, certainly not expected, but let's, let's roll with this. Let's see what we can learn from this situation. And so curiosity can help us move into a growth mindset where we're open. We're turning toward what's happening instead of running away from it or closing down. And so in that respect, what we've been talking about, this curiosity can be a really great way, not only to recognize when we're in fixed mindset situations or in our panic zone, but it can also help us open and start to constantly live in our growth zone. Mm -hmm. Even on top of that, I would say it can help us see how much better it feels to be in our growth zone than in our panic zone so that we start to naturally learn to live there more and more and more. Yeah. You said that curiosity is a superpower that helps us replace old habitual behaviors with the simple behavior of curious awareness. I love that. Nine. That, was so, that was so powerful. <laughs> Just think of curiosity as your superpower, Lauren. Yeah, no, of course. Um, you also talk a lot about meditation and mindfulness in the book, which Kelly and I are working so hard to to bring into our lives. And I liked how you explained meditation. Like, I, I think there's a lot of misconceptions around meditation that we think it's an empty mind or not having any thoughts, but that's not what it is at all. Um, if you can just touch on how meditation and mindfulness can really help, especially when it comes to anxiety. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions that I see out there around meditation. And, you know, certainly something that I, for years, I was struggling with, how can I just force myself to pay attention to my breath instead of, you know, instead of having all these thoughts come in, you're basically trying to force them out. So this idea that meditations around clearing our mind is absolutely <laughs> a false one. I think of meditation as being the small circle within a larger circle of mindfulness. 
So meditation can be a place, you know, if somebody sits down on a meditation cushion, so I'm sitting in my meditation room right now in my house, we could sit down on a meditation cushion in a meditation room, basically as a way to not have a bunch of distractions right in our face, you know? So think of it as level one of the video game of life <laughs> where, where it's like, okay, I'm going to start without all the distractions coming at me. And so we could sit down and we could meditate on a cushion. We could do a walking meditation. We could do some formal type of meditation that helps us focus and anchor ourselves in the present moment. Very helpful, right? If we anchor ourselves in the present moment, we can start to notice all the habit patterns of our minds. And so I think of mindfulness as a way of learning our minds work, you know, if, can we really pay attention? So often the, the two characteristics of mindfulness that are described are, are awareness, right? We have to be aware of what our mind's doing. And then the attitudinal quality of curiosity, some describe it as non-judgment. You know, we're not judging what's happening. We're just being curious. Oh, this is happening. And when we can be curious, we're more open to learning about what's happening and more open to being able to map out these habit patterns of our minds. So we can do that in, in a formal meditation where we're having, you know, some anchor to help us, you know, see when we're, when we're pulled away, or we could also be doing that in everyday life. So that, that smaller circle is within this larger circle of med of mindfulness, because if I'm walking down the street, I can notice that my mind is caught up in a worry habit loop and I can map it out right there. I don't have to be, you know, I don't have to like have my inflatable meditation cushion and suddenly be like, Oh, time to sit down and meditate. Cause I just noticed this, you know, my mind getting caught up in worry. I can do it right in the moment. And in fact, my lab has found in at least one of our studies that the informal mindfulness practices were actually better at moderating a, a decoupling of, you know, like an urge to do a behavior and the behavior itself. This is a smoking study that we've done where when people have an urge to smoke, it's not about just, okay, now we'll sit down and meditate. It was about, okay, in that moment that you have that urge, let's help you recognize it, map out that habit loop, and then write out that craving. And that was really, really helpful. So both are helpful, you know, formal meditation, that smaller circle within that larger circle of mindfulness, which could be any time that we wake up and we notice what's happening and we're curious about it. Yeah. I'm with you. I was terrible at meditating. I felt like I only meditated because you're just supposed to meditate. <laughs> and I would be sitting on the floor trying to focus on my breath. Didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And then once I read your book, it, it kind of clicked for me. Like I understood that it's not the point is to not meditate. The point is to observe your thoughts through meditation so that you're observe your thoughts in life as opposed to getting caught up in them. So that really clicked with me. You explained it perfectly. Oh, great. I think it's just a really good way of being more self-aware. <laughs> Meditating, yeah. it like challenges you to listen to your thoughts. And so that when you're out in the world, as you said, you can stop in that moment and address it internally rather than saying, oh, I have to clear my mind. Now. I have to dump my mind. No, no, no. Like in that moment, you can identify and you can move forward. So it's really powerful. And we should know that you have this beautiful yoga studio behind you right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yoga and meditation studio. So yeah, it just goes to show how important it is. But uh, so we're going to move into our rapid fire questions for you today. We have three questions. So three quick answers. What is one action our listeners can take today to begin to break an anxious habit? Be curious. How can we maintain a level of curiosity each day to keep on track? 
<laughs> so like I'm on a game show. I love this. Um, so I would say the only, the best way to uh, develop a habit is to repeat it. You know, so I think of it as short moments many times throughout the day. So I would say each time we can awaken our curiosity, it's more likely to develop that and foster that as a habit. So, you know, I'd say curiosity, rinse and repeat. Amazing. Can you leave our listeners with some final words of wisdom that you live by to keep your mind at ease? I would say, well, you know, I try to eat liberally from the, um, the two scoops of, uh, of mental attitude, which is curiosity and kindness. So I would add to the curiosity that we've talked about for folks to just really pay attention and see how delicious it is when people are kind to us and how delicious it is when we're kind to others. And especially how delicious it is when we're kind to ourselves, you know, there's so we're so good at judging in, especially in the Western world, notice what that feels like. And then also compare that to kindness and see which one's the bigger, better offer. So well said. I think a lot of us, we, <laughs> I think a majority of us like struggle with negative self-talk and we forget, oh, well, we should also be kind to ourselves. Mm, <laughs> yeah, that's sure. very important. That's, that should be the starting point. So, and I wanted to add that one of my favorite quotes from your book is when you said, uh, watch your thoughts, they become words, watch your words, they become actions, watch your actions, they become habits, watch your habits, they become character, watch your character, it becomes your destiny. I was like, wow. I was like, that was awesome. <laughs> so thank you so much, Judd. This was fantastic. I, I definitely feel more at ease through this discussion. Uh, definitely always learning a lot from you. And again, uh, we're very, very thrilled to have you because you are incredible. You've done so much. So, Well, thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much. I've struggled with anxiety for so long. And I finally was like, I, I always felt like I had to fix whatever I was anxious about. And I, I sat down, I'm like, no, I'm going to educate myself on anxiety and learn skills and understand how my mind works so that I can use that for the rest of my life. I'm, I can't control everything. So your book just nailed with that. I feel like now more than ever, these discussions need to be made. So I, I'm sure our listeners are going to take so much away from this and be able to apply it to their lives. That's great to hear. So where can our audience find you, Dr. Judd? Uh, I have a website drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D. And then I'm on Twitter at Judd Brewer and then Instagram at, I think it's at Dr. Period J-U-D. Amazing. Amazing. And you can, you can obviously, they can also look up eat right now app. Uh, I'm wanting mm -hmm. my share care craving to quit. We'll include all those links in the show notes as well as your Ted talk, which has over 17 million views, which is incredible. Um, and you're also on uh, 60 minutes with Anderson Cooper. Yes. So cool. He's very cool guy. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we have helped our listeners feel more at ease. So, so I appreciate it. And hopefully we can do this again. Sounds good. All, All right. right. Take care, Here's everybody. Everyone. Thanks so Bye -bye. much. Bye. Thank you for listening. That was our conversation with New York Times bestselling author and addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist, Dr. Judd Brewer, whose latest bestselling book, Unwinding Anxiety, helps us break the cycle that drives anxiety and addictive behaviors. We highly recommend this book, and you can find this read and learn more about Dr. Judd by checking out the links in our show notes. There you will also find links to Dr. Judd's TED Talk titled A Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit and his popular apps to help you manage anxious and addictive behaviors, including unwinding by share care, unwinding anxiety, 
eat right now and craving to quit. And if you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by sharing a story on Instagram or by sending us a DM on our Instagram or Facebook page at Millennial Minimalists. We love hearing from you. And if you haven't already, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. We love reading your words and your ratings and reviews help us bring on more exciting guests like Dr. Judd. So thanks again for listening and I will speak with you again in two weeks. Bye-bye.